This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello, and welcome to this mini episode of Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny M. Lavery, and this show is for you, our Plus subscribers. Our guest this week is Melissa Hughes, an R&D scientist who designs medical tests. And here we are reading a letter from a listener. This feels like a good moment to to move back into uh, advice-giving territory. Our, our next letter is uh, a little bit more weighted than some of the earlier ones. It, it contains both issues of like ongoing personal safety as well as sort of reflecting back on a, a pretty like painful um, and an and abusive relationship. So with yeah, sort of no, that, this one was a doozy. Yeah, with that sort of caveat, I'll, I'll read this one for us. The subject is just what to do. I briefly dated a man before COVID who raped and assaulted me. He also took non-consensual nude pictures of me, threatened suicide when I attempted to go home, and stalked me after I broke things off. I am compassionate to a fault, and I put myself in compromising situations because I feared for his well-being. The aftermath was traumatic for me, and I have been hospitalized more than once from the resulting fallout. Every time I got a letter from my lawyer or heard of another court hearing, I would stop eating sometimes for days. I do have a therapist, and we talk about these patterns. But because COVID really delayed the legal process and the ongoing attempts at healing, I feel really stuck now. I have had an order of protection against him for nearly two years. Some might say that's long enough, move on. But knowing this guy, I am afraid he might do something totally unexpected or out of left field. Also, just on principle, I want him to accept the fact that he terrorized a woman, so now he's not allowed to bother her anymore. I'm fearful of retaliation, but I'm also fearful of going too much into the fear that's inside my mind. Do I need to let this go? I really want to separate letting things go from uh, re-upping an order of protection. I really don't think that that's the rubric you should try to apply here, letter writer, just because an order of protection, given what you've described, sounds so reasonable and, and just has, has to do with just logistics and keeping yourself physically safe. So I, I don't know if that's just a fear you've had in your own mind or if anyone in your life has said this to you. But if anyone has ever suggested that like re-upping this order of protection or continuing in any way to like keep some sort of monitoring on your own safety – they're, they're just wrong. Um, that's not the same thing as living in the past or not letting go. Uh, that oh, is absolutely. just good. You should keep doing that forever. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, what I took this to be was, so the letter writer seems like they're sort of conflating how they feel about this relationship emotionally and they're moving on with mm-hmm. how difficult they found it to navigate the legal system. So I've... Mm. Um, I dipped my toe into getting an order of protection long ago. And I think I, in fact, didn't follow it up because it's, it's a real, it's a real hassle. Um, and uh, it's definitely the case that if you, uh, if your safety is not like really at risk, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a very difficult process. So, I mean. And even the question of like, is your safety at risk? It's. Yeah, Exactly. It's not like you can always perfectly predict, here are the exact odds that I'm going to get attacked tomorrow. 
Yeah, this letter writer says that uh, every time they uh, got a letter from their lawyer or heard about another court hearing, they would stop eating for days. So it sounds as though for this letter writer, in addition to it being baseline, very difficult to deal with the le- uh, with the um, legal system in this way, they found it um, very difficult to even live their lives in a normal way while trying to navigate this, and it was really uh, impairing their functioning. And yeah, so with that in mind, yeah, I think if they had found dealing with the legal system easy, I would say obviously you re-up your order for protection. But in this case, I do think there's a genuine conflict because if they find dealing with the legal system in and of itself traumatic, you're weighing the possibility, the unknown possibility of future trauma from this guy with the known possibility of trauma from dealing with the legal system. And yeah, I mean, I found this one like genuinely very difficult to to say what what they should do given how hard how hard they found um the process of getting that protection order. Yeah, I, I think it, it is useful there to sort of break this up into chunks. And so to, to the end of, yeah, if the administrative headaches of maintaining that protective order sometimes make it, you know, difficult to impossible for you to function or to care for yourself, um, I would definitely encourage you, letter writer, to look for ways that you can either delegate or automate some of that such that you can continue to keep that. And again, I, I know I, I know the letter writer knows it's not like a magical spell that means that 100 feet from you, like this person could never physically get. It is one tool among several that is about creating basically a paper trail and sometimes simply making it easier to get, you know, legal protection once you're in a worse position. So I I, I really also want to acknowledge this is not the end all and be all of keeping yourself safe. But like to that end, if you have any close friends who would be willing to help open mail for you and summarize the contents, if you can look into getting a legal advocate in addition to working with whatever lawyer or lawyers you have been working with, um, again, anybody who is like both qualified and trustworthy and can help cut down on the sort of like busy work that um, needs to be done but doesn't necessarily require you specifically to do it as long as you're like there to sign off on something notarized, um, I would really encourage you to do that, letter writer. And then those logistics aside, you mentioned that you have a therapist. You talk about this, which is wonderful. I I don't want to speculate too much about what type of therapy you have been pursuing, but I, I would encourage you, letter writer, if you haven't already, to look into therapeutic methods and protocols that are specifically designed to treat, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to diagnose you with PTSD, but you are dealing with the ongoing fallout of a traumatic assault and an ongoing stalking. Um, so I I think it's pretty, I, I feel relatively comfortable saying looking for therapeutic methods that deal with ongoing trauma will be beneficial for you. Sometimes in those cases, there are limits to what talk therapy can can do to help. Um, and in fact, in, in some situations when it comes to certain triggers or, or, or certain um, traumas, some kinds of, of talk therapy can actually in the short term, exacerbate those responses, which is not to say stop talking to your therapist or assume that therapy is going to make your life more difficult, but um, you know, specifically looking for um, 
you know, trauma-focused psychotherapy, um, considering cognitive processing therapy if you haven't already. I don't want to start like recommending specific methodologies or specific treatments for obvious reasons, but um, if you haven't, uh, if it's just been like a kind of standard talk therapy session where you occasionally bring up this guy, you might benefit from more focused treatment. That's absolutely correct. And, you know, in my capacity as somebody who allegedly knows something about uh, drugs, there's definitely been, you know, some recent, uh, well, old and more recent studies about the use of psychedelics in a therapeutic context specifically for PTSD. So that is increasingly available and something that is, uh, yeah, potentially worthwhile to address your specific problem. Yeah. And to that end, again, if you if you want a little bit more guidance on that front, one thing that I would recommend is there are, uh, you know, a number of websites associated with different states, uh, VAs um, and veterans hospitals, which is often, you know, the forefront of PTSD treatments. And some of them have guides to some of your options ways to sort of assess what you might be looking for in a particular treatment, other people who might share your particular suite of symptoms or experiences. I would also imagine that women's shelters, um, domestic violence shelters provide similar resources or compilations of resources. Those would all be good places if you're kind of thinking, I'm not sure where to start, or I'm not even sure what kinds of treatments I want to be looking at. Um, those would probably be, not. I'm not saying go to a, a VA hospital or go to a shelter, but many of them will have websites that you can, you know, click around on and, and get a little information from. Yeah, no, that, that sounds like a really good resource. In terms of the question of whether to uh, renew the uh, protective order, I think perhaps a way to think about it is, you know, maybe, I'm not sure how uh, how quickly those things cycle, but it seems like perhaps, you know, give yourself a number of a number of years that you feel like you would like to renew it and then give yourself a like, if he hasn't, you know, made any attempt at contact during that period of time, after that, I'm going to give myself the gift of not engaging with the legal system on this anymore. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what the right number of years is. I did, uh, I did go ahead and like look at recidivism among stalkers. And mm. it seems like two years is right about the or one year is the average time that they that uh, stalkers will you know reattempt to uh, contact their victim, but of course, average is is not this specific guy. So, I mean, two years seems like there's a pretty good chance he's out of your life, but not. Nah, I would I would I think try to re it up again, you know, for another couple of years if it was me. I share that sense of both trying to get a sense of like what might be typical in such a situation. And then also really recognizing often there's not something that's typical. It's not perfectly predictable. And so I think what that speaks to is that general sense of, you know, letter writer, this is an incredibly dangerous man who harmed you seriously more than once. Um, it's really sensible to want to protect yourself. It's really sensible to be afraid. I mean, I, I understand the desire to like not want to live feeling fear all of the time. I really, really do. And I, I hope that that is possible. But, you know, you have been sensibly 
worried about your safety. That is a good thing. That is just self-protective and and good. And so I would encourage you not to treat that part of yourself as like, that's the part of me that won't move on so much as like, that's the part of myself that has wanted to protect myself. And that is good. You've been giving yourself a gift. And I realize that that gift is also incredibly exhausting because constant vigilance is exhausting. Um, So I, I really understand why you feel both like I'm attached to this protectiveness and sometimes I am depleted by this protectiveness and any any additional resources, whether they be support groups for people who have you know suffered from assault and stalking, whether they be adding on to the kind of baseline therapeutic treatment you're already receiving, whether it be talking to a doctor or a psychiatrist about the possibility of adding different medications to um, help you with like just ongoing like stability or relief from panic attacks, whatever that might look like, I would encourage you to explore all of your options. Uh, you know that that last second to last line, just on principle, I want him to accept that you aren't allowed to bother her anymore. And I I took that to mean I want him to know that the protective order is still up rather than it's really important to me that I make sure I know how he feels about it. But I, I certainly hope that's what was meant because yeah, definitely one thing that you should let go is worrying about what he feels about anything. As long as he's far away from you, it doesn't matter what he feels. Right. And I, I I can really understand why a part of you, especially after he hurt you so seriously, wants to feel like, I really want him to know that what he did was wrong and to accept that he's never allowed to try to get in touch with me again. So incredibly understandable response. but. If there's ever a part of you that feels like, I want to make sure I need to know what he thinks or feels about this, I need to remind him of something, if that ever leads you to think about getting in contact with him yourself, um, share that with your therapist, share that with a trusted friend. Don't do that. Um, Totally understandable feeling, but not a feeling that you can let drive your actions. Does that seem like the right note for you? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you want to cut him out of your physical and emotional life in the most efficient way possible. And uh, that one step there is to definitely kind of stop thinking of him as a person who has feelings that you would ever care about and just think of him as a problem that you want protection from. Yeah, I, I think that's a good mode to approach it from logistically. And then again, like therapy and conversations with trusted friends and in support groups is another really good safe place to explore that part of you that's like, I get what I can and can't do and what I should and shouldn't do. But here is the thing that I want, which is to be in a room with him where I'm wearing a big crown and I'm covered in armor and I'm saying, here's everything you ever did wrong. And he's <laughs> saying, yes, I'm sorry. It was awful. I, I, I you know, those there are there are ways that you can safely and non like punitively explore those desires within yourself as long as you have a really clear sense of I cannot go about trying to make that happen because it would endanger me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, write him all of the letters you want and do not send them. That's that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I just letter writer, I I'm I'm glad that you wrote in. I'm you know, I'm aware it always sounds a little like cheap to say like, I'm so sorry, but I am truly so sorry. Yeah, no, this is this, you went through something horrible and 
Congratulations for navigating the legal system when it was so hard for you. That's that's huge. And a lot of people are not able to do that. So, you know, give yourself um, a lot of credit for that. Yeah, I, I guess then my last thought there is, you know, I think I was more focused earlier on the the physical safety element, but again, without getting too far afield, letter writer, I hope that you have shared with your therapist that in previous moments of being especially, you know, we can use the word triggered, we don't have to if that feels unhelpful, um, but like especially activated by memories of this traumatic experience that you have had, you have not been able to eat. I hope that you've shared that with your therapist. Um, I would encourage you to do so if you haven't already. I don't know if that's been very common or very frequent or if it's impeded your ability to like go about your day. I don't want to make too many speculations or treat you like a a shrinking violet, but not eating for several days is pretty concerning. And I would really, really just encourage you to, again, just share that with somebody who's in a position to help you with that so that you can kind of plan ahead for, if I know that there are going to be days when the idea of food just feels overwhelming and bad and scary, what are like harm reduction strategies that I can have in place? What are uh, support structures that I can have in place so that I'm getting in at least like a bare minimum of calories that don't require a lot of planning or cooking or chewing um, just to make sure I don't pass out. You know, it, it doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to solve it, but but not eating for a couple of days is, is harmful. Um, and so I, I, sorry, I hope I, I don't want to come across as like really freaking out and telling the letter writer, like, go check yourself into a, an out, an inpatient clinic and like, I'll, I'll just stop yeah. speculating there. Yeah, no, but definitely. Yeah. Get, get yourself some like Soylent or Insure or whatever, uh, whatever <laughs> meal replacement thing and like drink a couple of those on the days you can't eat and it'll keep your body together and good luck. Yeah. And and if if beyond that, if you notice that there is a part of you that comes to associate not eating with a type of protectiveness or a kind of emotional safety that feels really vital to you, again, that's a, a, usually a good indicator that self-destructive or disordered eating behaviors are, are coming along. That's not uncommon when it comes to dealing with stuff like trauma. And I don't say any of that to say like, now you got another fucking project you got to work on. Because one of the <laughs> things that's really frustrating about like, ongoing trauma is like, it is exhausting and not fun. And so there's also like a real part of the brain that's like, I don't want to fucking keep working on all my problems. I'm tired. I just want to like do the things that make me feel safe and good and go to sleep. Um, so letter writer, I hope that doesn't feel like too tall of an order, but yeah, you know, be on, be on your guard. If there's a part of you that's like not eating means safety, um, that is a voice that will not help you be safe or well or flourish. And, and so that's, that's something to resist and share with others. Yeah. Be on guard for that. And also, I mean, I get it sometimes, <laughs> sometimes when you're anxious, it's just, it's hard to it's hard to put the food in into the body, but yeah, uh, it's it's important to do it. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. 
don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>